All right, church, my name is Kyle Mercer. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, we are in a series in a small book in the back of the Bible. Everything we do here comes from the Bible. We are a church that is under authority, and we believe that God wrote a book and gave it to us. And we've been in this small little book in the back of the Bible called First Peter. You can scroll to or swipe to if you want to or type to or whatever. Uh, First Peter, and let me say this, that while we've been in this series, we've been in this series since uh, the Sunday after Easter. We've been kind of walking through this book slowly, line by line, verse by verse, word by word in many ways, uh, but also we've been taking breaks. And last week I had my friend, and who's also a member of this church, Will Plitt, and he, he, if you were not here, he preached on the life of Peter from a different passage. He preached from John chapter 21, and, and how the gospel and how Jesus Christ restored Peter after sin and failure. So really an incredible message, and, and uh, it let us get to know Peter better. Now, one of the fascinating things about Peter is that Peter was one of Jesus' three best friends, and that Peter wrote two books of the Bible that we now get to read, and we can better understand Jesus from it. Now, Peter, when he was called by Jesus, was they, they estimate somewhere between 15 and 20 years old. Jesus calls him to follow him, and now he writes this many years later. We don't know exactly how old Peter is, but he does not have much time left. And he writes it with a sense of urgency in the whole letter, but especially, I would say, in these last two chapters. Um, today, he's going to talk about how we have very little time left on earth in comparison to eternity, and how we should live that time uh, effectively. Um, you may not know this, but uh, you have, the average American has 27,375 days on earth. That's roughly 75 years. You have 27,375 days on earth. And so what I want us to do is, in light of that, I want us to read 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11, but we're really going to focus in the first six verses here. Follow along with me. Here's what it says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... If you're new, this is what we talk about all the time, that Jesus Christ suffered and died for sinners. This is the message that Peter, Jesus' best friend, was the most excited to talk about, write about, sing about, pray about. Here's what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. It's, it's, the, it's military language. It's, um, we'll get into this, but it's integrate this into your life. It's put, pick it up and put it on. It's meditate and absorb into yourself these realities. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the, here's the first mention of time. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. Your life, according to the Bible, on this earth is called the time in the flesh. And you get about 20, uh, 27,000 days. And here's what he says. No longer for human passions. Particularly, that means sinful passions. There are good human passions, there are bad human passions. Here he's talking about the sinful passions, when you want to fill a, a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. He says this, the um, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, that's interesting. A lot of places in the Bible will always contrast um, your passions with God's will. What you want to do, reverse on what God's will is. What you feel like doing, verse what God said. And that's going to be the battle. If you're a Christian, welcome to the rest of the Christian life. What God said versus how you feel. And he's saying, okay, what I want you to do is no longer live for human passions, but for God's will. Look at verse 3. Another reference to time. For the time that has passed... In other words, um, if you've lived, you know, for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, the, for the time that has passed suffices. You've spent enough time sinning. For doing what the Gentiles want to do, and then verse 3 is a great description of the average college student's time in college. Okay? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Interesting, it's, it's all sex and alcohol. Abusing sex, uh, uh, abusing, um, abusing alcohol in their normal forms. And lawless idolatry, it's all false worship. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, this is interesting. What he's saying is you've been saved out of all of this. If you're new here, again, I want you to understand that God doesn't save good people. There are no good people. That God saves a bunch of sinners who confess that they need to be saved out of a bunch of different lifestyles, out of a bunch of different sin patterns. And what Peter's saying is you've been saved out of those uh, sinful lifestyles. Don't go back into them. And he says this. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's always thinking about the final judgment. 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What he means is those who are now dead. The gospel was preached to people and they died. But they are safe because they believed and trusted in the gospel. That they, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And then verse 7 is a third reference to time. The end of all things is at hand. Time will one day end. Therefore, live in light of this. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here's the big idea for this sermon. Not, this is not our home, but it is a place to use our time for God's will. That's the big idea. Now, time is something that, as Americans, we're all very aware of, right? Uh, we all have, if we don't have a watch on, we, everyone used to wear watches, but now that we have phones, we don't need watches as much. The most common question before the iPhone that you would ask somebody would be, after maybe their name and what they do for a living, would be, what time is it? Well, we think about, we are so aware of time. Some of you, while I'm preaching, you're going to be checking your watch. How much longer? Okay. <laughs> uh, I want you to know that uh, in the back of this worship center on a massive screen is a countdown clock for how much time I have left preaching each week. I see it every time. Sometimes I see it too late in the service. Okay. But I see it every time. Um, some of you, you're very aware of time because you actually bill people according to your time. I've talked to lawyers. I think one lawyer was telling me um, that she can bill time down to the five-minute increment. That that's how valuable your time is. You know how you get paid on your time. I've talk, I talked to several doctors this afternoon. I said, I said roughly, I said, would eight minutes be about the amount of time you're allowed to spend with a patient? Oh, no, not, not that much time. That, that, that you actually walk into a room and the average doctor or whatever knows, depending on, I guess, of, of course, the discipline, I've got only this much time with this patient that I'm allowed. It's like, our time is incredibly valuable. And we get that. And, and actually, uh, what, we know, what we maybe all know but don't say out loud is that we all... Time is also the great equalizer. Some people can be better looking or have more money or have a better network or a net worth or better job, more money, higher um, competency, bigger capacity. But we all have the same 168 hours each week, 24 hours each day. And that we also, we don't live this way, but time is much more valuable than money. I mean, think about if Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world, CEO of Amazon, think about if Jeff Bezos were to get a terminal illness but if he gave up all of his money, he could live another 40 or 50 years. I guess, I can't say for sure, I bet he would do it. Because we all, we all know intrinsically that time is more valuable. This is why young people, they'll go, oh, the dreaded 1%, the wealthy 1%. Let me tell you about the 1%. They're all old. Most of the 1% are old. What do you expect? If you spend your whole life working and saving money, here's what you'll have. Lots of money and you'll be old. But I wouldn't doubt that maybe most of those people, if they could, if, if there was a magical world we could do this, they might trade their wealth for your youth. It just, if you think about it, time is so valuable. So how do we use our time? There's a couple of different ways um, people waste their time. They did a study, they asked people, how much time do you waste every day? And they didn't qualify it. Like, you can decide how you waste time. Like, we're not gonna tell you that, you know, this is wasting time. The average person admitted to wasting somewhere between four and six hours of their day watching cat videos on YouTube, okay, uh, saying, okay, that's it, I'm just going to watch one season tonight, just one season. <laughs> um, right, that happens, all right, you know, you take extra naps, you're sleeping in longer than you need to, you're just doing nothing, you're mindlessly scrolling uh, Facebook or some social media thing, and, and so that would basically be, uh, you know, four to six hours, somewhere between 30 to 40 hours a week. That's a work week that people admit to and confess to wasting every time. So some people waste it, uh, and some people waste whole seasons of their lives. I can't tell you how many Christians I've met who said I wasted my entire college time. I wasn't falling, I, I completely wasted it. I've thought to people say I wasted all my singleness. I thought to people said I wasted, I had my kids in the home all the time, young and wanting to spend time with me, and I wasted it. And so people waste their lives. Other, other people, uh, what they try to do, or they waste their time. Other, other people, uh, they try to save time. That, you know, many of us try that. We try to be efficient, effective. I'm the person who listens to everything on 2X. I don't know. Every podcast, every audiobook, I've actually had people say, you listen to things on 2X, don't you? I said, yeah, how do you know? They go, you talk like 2X all the time. <laughs> I, I was like, I think that's what's happened. I've, I've been listening to people talk fast for so long that it feels unnatural for me to talk slowly like this. Uh, so, so that's one thing. Some people talk about um, they want to make time. You'll hear people talk about that all the time. People who feel guilty about how they say, oh, I need to make time for my family. I, I should be making time to work out. I should, you know, people talk about managing time. People talk about spending time. Let me tell you what the Bible talks about. The Bible uses an interesting phrase. None of those um, 
Well, wasting time's bad. Those other ones can be good things. Um, the Bible talks about a phrase called redeeming the time. And it's interesting because it, it, redeem means to buy back. So to redeem something basically means to first confess that you've wasted it in the past. And, that, and that's, see, one of the things about Christians, if, you, if you're new here, maybe you're not a Christian, one of the things we want to do as Christians is we just, we've, we've not arrived. We want to admit, hey, you know, we have wasted time. So to redeem the time means I may have wasted the last 10 years of my life, or I may have wasted a season of my life. But what to redeem it means is the time left, I want to use it for Christ and his kingdom. Another thing the Bible says to do is to number your days. He says, uh, David says, or Moses says in Psalm 90, teach me to number my days and I may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, what does it mean to number your days? It means to realize you only have a certain amount of days, then there's the final judgment, or you die, or Christ returns. And if you go numbering the days, what does that mean? Well, you've done it. If you've ever been a kid looking forward to Christmas, you numbered your days. If you ever hated your job, and you knew you had like five shifts left, you've numbered your days. If you ever got married, and you were that couple that put on Facebook, we have 27 days, four hours, six minutes, eight seconds. Okay, we all saw that, right? That was, that was numbering the days, if you ever knew your due date for a baby and you're like, the baby's coming and it's going to be in, you know, 14 days and you're numbering your days. And the Bible says that what we should do is we should redeem the time, make the most of every moment and we should be numbering our days. And, and, and Peter, I'm going to show you this in a second. Peter tells us three things we should do with our time today, with the time left. I'm going to show you this. And, and what Peter wants us to do is he wants to use our time for God's will. He wants to use our time to further the ministry and the message and the mission of Jesus. And he's going to say there's three things that we need to do. And they're very simple. I'm going to tell you, and you're going to go, well, that's what I think you would say as a pastor. It's like, and you go, well, I've heard that before. It's like, exactly. It's very, very simple. He's, he's going to say this. He's going to say, number one, you need to deal with the sin in your life. That the reason you're not where you need to be, that you've not discipled and, and had a ministry and mission like you could, is because there's certain things in your life you just have still not dealt with. You're still giving in to sinful passions in your life, and you're not as effective in mission and ministry as you could be. And you know that. And you've been playing with it, You've been minimizing it. You've been rationalizing it. I'm gonna, we'll show you that. The second thing he's going to say is you've been isolated and separated from people. That you can't have an effective ministry if you're not connected to Christians. You can't have a, an effective mission if you're not connected to non-Christians. And so it's like you read the Bible and you go, this is amazing. It's so straightforward. He's telling us exactly what we need to do. Deal with sin in my life. Be connected to Christians who I can love. Be connected to non-Christians who I can have mission toward and also love. And the third thing he's going to say is, and here's another reason that you, the mission's not going forward. You don't know what your gifts are, and you're not using them. That God's given you certain gifts, and we're going to see this. The Bible says that every person has at least one gift. And what you should do, one of the greatest joys in life is realizing, how did God make me? And then I would love to use these gifts in ministry and mission toward other people. So I want, that's what we're going to do with our time. We're going to look at how to deal with sin in our lives personally. That's how we should spend our time. We're going to learn how to be connected to community, and we're going to be learning how to use our gifts to serve others. So let's look at those three things together. The first is very, very clear. He says this, don't use your time for sinful passions, but for God's will. The temptation is going to be to use your time to satisfy your sinful desires, it's interesting because each one of these actually confronts an idol in the culture. I believe this confronts the number one idol in our culture today, which I'm going to call sensualism. Sensualism, basically, if you look it up, if you Google it, it's, it's a word that means um, to try and satisfy your physical appetites, especially your sexual appetites. It's like, though, no, that sounds like our culture. You know, our culture says, um, discover yourself. And the Bible says, deny yourself. The culture says, Listen to your heart, right? And the, and the Bible says your heart is deceitful among, above all things. And so I want, you to read, I want you to see this. I want you to, everything we do here, I want it to arise right out of Scripture. Look at verse 1 with me. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, so we celebrate what Christ did. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We're going to get there. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What you have to do as a Christian is you have to first admit that you still have sinful passions in your heart. See, a religious person, and we try to talk a lot here about being religious versus being a real Christian. A religious person is all about external conformity, and a rel religious people normally tell other people out there to repent of sins they don't struggle with. And that's why nobody likes religious people, right? 
because they act like everything's okay on the, the, and then they're not. And then it's all about the external and then they just tell everybody else to repent where they don't deal with their own heart. And so well, the first thing, and this is, there's a freedom in being a Christian to basically say, you know what, I still have sinful passions, I still have sinful desires, and, and I, want to, I want to put them to death. I don't want to embrace them. But I don't want to deny that they're there. I don't want to act like I don't have them. I don't want to act like, uh, try to minimize them and rationalize them and hide them from other people. And if you go, well, how, God, give me a verse, give me a passage. What do you mean every Christian struggles with um, sinful passions? Well, first of all, he's telling them right there in that verse uh, to not give in to them, which means that's going to be the natural tendency in your life is to want to give in to your sinful passions. Secondly, think about the Apostle Paul. If you don't know, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Paul's like the great evangelist, the great preacher, the great discipler, the great apostle. And, if you, and Paul in Romans 7 basically spends an entire chapter saying, guys, the things I don't want to do, I do. And you're like, did you say that out loud? You're the Apostle Paul. And he says, and then there's things I want to do that I don't do. It's like, well, man, you're the most mature Christian that I think has ever walked this earth, and you admit to your, you admit to your sinful passions and desires. But you, don't, you want to put them to death. You, want, you don't want to live out of them. So how do you deal with them? He says this. Look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, under, he's saying, take this gospel message, the same message that saves you can sanctify you. The same message that forgives you changes you. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking which is different than just saying believe the gospel. A lot of times it's like, I, I, in, in America, we have a very shallow idea of what belief means. So we're like, yeah, you know, we, we intellectually assent to, well, whatever the Bible, if you're a Christian, you're, whatever the Bible says. Oh yeah, Jesus Christ died for me. Oh yeah, he's gonna come again. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go to heaven when I die. But oftentimes, we don't actually integrate those things. So the, the, the phrase in that, that I want you to focus on in there, in there is arm yourselves. That, that is the phrase to mean pick it up and put it on. Absorb it and integrate it into your life. And I'm telling you, it is hard work. Most of us have not done that with most of the Bible. I remember one of the greatest disciples I knew, his name's Joan Aramore, he's still alive. I met him when I was a young, new Christian. He said, here's what, here's what Christianity is, getting this Bible in you. And he's like, the Bible's fairly simple and straightforward once you understand what it's saying. But getting that in the complexity of yourself, in the culture and context in which you live, that's the difficulty of it all. I'll give you an example. Tim Keller. Love Tim Keller. Former pastor in New York City. Everybody kind of knows him as the big New York Times, you know, book writer. And what most people don't know is for a decade, he pastored a small church in West Virginia. Or maybe it was in Virginia. And he tells a story in one of his sermons or one of his books that this 15-year-old girl came into his office and said, can we meet? And he said, yeah, for counseling. And the girl said, I, I've got to talk to you about something. And she was, a, I guess, from a godly Christian family in the church. And she was a Christian, strong Christian girl. And she said, I've got to tell you something. She said, I know that God created me. Listen to all the things she's saying. I know God created me. And I know that Christ died for me. And I know the Holy Spirit's inside of me. This is like really good theology, okay? And I know that the church is my family. And I know that I'm headed to heaven. And then she said this to Tim Keller, but what does that matter if no 15-year-old boy's like you? And Tim Keller said, what's happening in that moment, she's just being more honest than most of us, is that she's saying all these things that she intellectually believes. What she's basically saying is, I know out here the Bible says this. I've heard it quoted, I've heard it read, I've heard it taught, but, but I've not integrated it into my life so much so that actually I... It's not emotionally and volitionally affecting me, if that makes sense. I'll give you many examples in our lives. We would say, if I were to, pro any of you here who said you're Christian, if we were to say, man, why, you know, uh, tell me about the prayer minute, how, how important prayer is. Oh, prayer is so important. Oh, the church is to be committed to the word and prayer. Oh, do we think prayer, oh, prayer works. Prayer moves mountains. Prayer is how God gets things done. It's like, really? Then why does the average American pray for six minutes a day? And you just kind of go, all right, you know, maybe I don't believe prayer works. Maybe the beginning of repentance and growth in my life is to admit I don't think prayer works very well. And I want to believe and embrace and integrate into my life what the Bible says. Part of it is you don't fully even understand it till you step out and obey it. Like Frederick Nietzsche, who randomly and weirdly enough I've quoted a couple times now, um, he's not a Christian, he's an atheist, but he, he just, he had such interesting insights. 
And one of the things he said, he was very hard on the scholars of his day, not just Christian scholars, scholars in general. And he said, all the scholars of his day, he, he said they taught bloodless truths. And he said everything, he was a little prideful, he said everything I teach is a bloody truth. They teach bloodless truths. And here's what he meant by that. They teach a bunch of things they've heard other people say, they've read other places, but they actually have it integrated into their life, so they're teaching things that they're not living. And you've all done, you've all said things before that you're like, as you're saying them, there's part of you that's like, I don't believe this. I'm saying it, but there's a, there's a the real me, the center of me doesn't really believe this. And then he said, what, what, what a bloody truth is, is the truth that you have scars from living it out yourself. That I'm trying to live, I'm try, it's like, it, for the example of prayer, it's like, look, man, I'm, I'm, I've grown, grown from five minutes a day to 30 minutes a day to an hour a day, and, and, I'm try, and it's in my schedule, and I'm actually seeing God's actually moving in my life. I'm, I, I, I've had several conversations I've been praying about. God's opening doors in new ways. I have a new intimacy with Christ, so I have the authority now to say that prayer is, is, is really works. Does that make sense? But I'll give you a couple other examples. We, we say, um, you know, husbands will say, and I could pick on wives too, but husbands will say, you know, yes, we're, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. It's like, yeah, but you won't watch her episode of the show she wants to watch. It's like, what's wrong with us? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're supposed to sacrificially lay our lives down like for our wives like Christ loved the church, but I don't really want to do the chores that she asked me to do. It's like, there's a, such a massive, it, it's scary, it's actually, you don't want to think about this too much, you'll be kind of scared of how, big the gap is from what you say you believe to what you live. You know, we say, oh yeah, I believe in hell. It's like, do you know what you're saying when you say that? And that's what all Christians have always believed, and it's nobody talked about hell more than Jesus. So to say you believe in hell is to say you believe in eternal conscious torment forever for people who don't express conscious repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, which would be the vast majority of the world. And so to say that, and I believe that, at least I say I believe that, I've signed documents and covenants and doctrinal statements that say things like that. And when I read the Bible, I say, I, I, I believe that. But how many of us haven't had a gospel conversation with a lost person in months or years? And it's like, can those, I mean, just, maybe they can, but can they exist together? Can you really believe in hell and talk to no lost people about Jesus Christ and the hope that you have in him for months or years? This isn't to guilt anybody. This is to say, this is, this is why Peter says it's time to arm ourselves with these things. It's time to think about them long enough and wrestle with them hard enough that we integrate them into our lives. And there's not an easy way to do this. Like, it's interesting that the, way, the name that God has for his people in the Old Testament is Israel, which means the people that wrestle with me. Isn't that interesting? It's like, all right, here's your name. You wrestle with me. Maybe that's how it's integrated. I wrestle with God about the doctrine of hell. And I think about it, and I think what it means for my life, and I think about what it means for my lost family members. Maybe I don't want to think about what that means. Maybe I don't want to get that emotionally attached to what it might mean for all the people in my city that don't know Christ. But I'll tell you, there's nothing more powerful than when you're hearing somebody talk and you're like, that person really believes in hell. I know a friend of mine, every time he talks about lost people, he cries. I'm like, there, you, ha you have something I don't have, and I want to have it. So he's saying what we need to do is we need to pick it up, we need to integrate it into our lives. But then he says, just he, look at what he says in verse four. He says, when you do this, when you do this, people will think you're strange. Verse four, with respect to this, they are surprised. They are surprised when you do not join them. So when you're like, All right, no, I'm actually only gonna drink this much alcohol tonight. Why? Well, no, I actually don't watch those types of shows. Why? Uh, yeah, when me and my girlfriend go, we get two separate rooms. Why? Uh, I like to give part of my weekend to the church and serve. Why? I give a percentage of my income to the church. Why? That's kind of the language. They would be surprised. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, this is interesting. This, it's, it's the idea that they make fun of you. And, and, and it's interesting because there's a movie that came out probably, I don't know what year it was, 10 years ago. It's on Netflix. Now, I've never seen it, but I know what it's about. And it's the movie 40-Year-Old Virgin. If you ever see this movie or you ever even just see a trailer of it, you're like, hmm. Now, if I, if I say 40-Year-Old Virgin, if I said, now, is that a movie about honoring virginity into life, into long life? and the joy of singleness and celibacy? Or is it a movie completely making fun of the idea that a guy would be in his 40s and still a virgin? It's the second thing. It's an entire movie making fun 
of a Christian value and virtue. That's what, that, that would just be a cultural example. I see this every time we send a family to the mission field. There's somebody in the extended family, the extended friends, who said, why are you, you shouldn't do this, you're educated, do you have a good job? You've got beautiful little kids, why would you move to India? By the way, what's really interesting is because I visit a lot of missionary families, when they go to India, when they go to China, all the people in China go, what are you doing here? <laughs> Why'd you come from America? Why would you ever live here? It's actually a great opportunity, to, by the way, to share the gospel with them. Well, because Jesus Christ went somewhere that maybe he didn't want to go. That wasn't quite as nice as his home. You know, heaven's a pretty nice place, and he came here. And so they'll think, they'll think you're strange. But here's another thing about it, too, that what happens uh, at the same time is the reason that they get angry is because when, when somebody, when you get your life together, if you start to repent of sin, if you start to uh, really follow Christ, what's going to happen is your light is going to expose their darkness. And, and I see this all the time. It's like, you know, I've seen this with couples before. It's like one couple decides, I'm going to eat healthy and start exercising. The other couple at first says, okay, that's great. And then the, 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 other, the, the person starts to get in better shape and the, the, the person's like, I don't like this. <laughs> Because you getting in shape is actually exposing that I'm not in very good shape. And your healthy eating is exposing my unhealthy eating. And I don't want to be the not good-looking spouse next to the good-looking spouse. I mean, this is really, because what, that's what, it's like, imagine you're on a work team, and, one of the, and you're, there's five or six of you, and you got it pretty easy, and no one's working that hard, and one of the guys says, that's it, I want to start working hard on this team. Everyone else is like, no, why would you do that? <laughs> We've got an easy gig here. Don't let the manager know. None of us do any work here. It's like as soon as one person steps up, it's, what it, it's, it's the second oldest story in the Bible. The story of Cain and Abel is the story of how great of a guy Abel was. It's like, man, makes the better sacrifice, does the right thing, and Cain cannot stand it. So what he's saying here is you need to begin to put your life together. And then what I love about the Bible is it gives you the right expectations. Put your life together and then expect that as you would think it'd be the opposite, but as your life gets better, more people will be angry at you. Because you will just be exposing their unwillingness to repent and change and their need. So that's the first thing. He says, work on yourself. Fight against the idol of sensualism. That's not about what you feel and what you want to do. It's what God's will is for you. Here's the second thing. The second thing has to do with community. He says, don't use your time to be alone but to be in community. Don't use your time to be alone, but to be in community. I think this goes against the second biggest idol in our culture, which is the idol of individualism. It's the idol that I wanna be by myself, do whatever I wanna do, answer to nobody, that I wanna be an autonomous, self-sufficient person who answers to nobody and does exactly what I wanna do. Well, I'm sorry, that's the definition of sin. Now, God does not want us to be independent or dependent, but to be interdependent on one another. And so it's a, this is interesting. What you're going to see in verses 7 through 9 is a call to be in community. That if you're going to use your time well, you need to deal with the sin in your life now so that you're not dealing with, you don't want to be the person in your 50s, if you're in your 30s right now, you don't want to be the person still hiding your porn habit in the 50s from your grandkids. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be the wife screaming at your husband in front of your grandkids. You don't want to be that person. It's like you want to deal with these things now. Because part of what happens, by the way, if you don't deal with them, they get more convoluted, complex, comprehensive. Things that didn't need counseling now need counseling. So he says, deal with those things, then come into community. And I want you to look at verses 7 through 9. The end of all things is at hand. That's a reference to time ending. That's a reference to the return of Christ that Jesus Christ will return visibly bodily from the sky, that we live in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, that every event in human history that needed to happen from God's perspective before Christ could return has happened. The next big event on God's calendar is the return of Christ. That's what that means. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all. This is interesting. Above all. I just talked about prayer, but more important than prayer in this moment, and prayer is very important, but above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, that's interesting. Here's what he's saying. The, the, it literally means to keep loving one another earnestly means keep loving one another in spite of obstacles, barriers, opposition. 
And that's going to happen. If you generally say, I love people, you know, I'm just going to love people, well, you're not going to have very much, you're not going to have a very hard time just randomly loving people. But if you're going to say, I'm going to commit to this community group and this family and my, this neighborhood and these coworkers, well, then just, just get ready for the long haul. Get ready to love people in spite of their faults and failures and flaws. Just get ready for it. And he's saying, you're going to need a love. Now, 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 this is the reason that we struggle with this as Americans is we have such a paper-thin, shallow idea of what love is. So most people, when they think of love, I really believe, so, so we use the word love like, I love nachos, I love tacos, I love my wife, I love Netflix. It's like, what, you know? We just use that. So, so love is a commitment to another person's highest good. That's a really good definition of love. I didn't come up with it. I don't know who first said it. But what most people think love is, most people think love is you make me feel good. And so you, if someone ever says, well, you're not making me feel good, it's like, well, here's a great answer to that. Well, what if I, I need to make you right now not feel good so future you will be thankful? Because unfortunately, there's not just you now. There's you for the next 50 years. And sometimes you have to have a really hard conversation with some girl. And you have to say some really hard things to some guy or to your son or to your grandson or to your daughter or to your dad. It's like, I've got to have this hard conversation and you're not going to feel really loved right now, but I am loving you and maybe future you will thank me. And so love is a commitment to the, uh, another person's highest good. And he says, this is interesting. I want you to see what he says in verse 9 or verse uh, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love, he says one thing that love does. It covers a multitude of sins. It's different from condoning sin. It doesn't condone sin. It covers sin. And, and, and covering sin doesn't mean that it um, acts like it's not there. That's one way you cover something up. Oh, this isn't happening. No, nothing to see here. You know, that's not what it's saying. That it, we rationalize and minimize and, and all that. No, no. It's saying that we're the kind of people who talk about sin but know where to take it afterwards. We're the type of people who are tough on sin but tender with the sinner. That's what he means by that. But then he says, and this is where I want to park for just a little bit, verse 9. He says, show hospitality. This is awesome. I don't know if you know this. Hospitality is a biblical command. At least three times in the New Testament, we are commanded to practice hospitality. It is a requirement for every elder or pastor in the church that to some level, he must be hospitable. Look at this. It says, Show hospitality to one another. And some of you go, oh man, is Kyle going to talk about hospitality? Without grumbling, okay? That's the end of that verse, without grumbling. Right, here's what that, well, now, why would we grumble about hospitality? Because, well, think about it. Hospitality, uh, hospitality invites people in and to the most intimate places of your life. And what, so, so if you're going to practice hospitality, by the way, the, the definition of hospitality is the welcoming in of the stranger. That's why the word hospital, the word hospital just means to care for the stranger. Hospitality is to welcome in the stranger. That's what it literally means. And if you're going to welcome someone in and you're going to practice hospitality in America, guess when you're going to practice it most likely? If you're going to, really, if you're going to practice hospitality, your weekends and your nights. What are the most valuable times to you guys? Your weekends and your nights. Well, if you're going to do it, you're probably going to actually need to budget for it. I've been reading several books on hospitality recently. Here's one. The Simplest Way to Change the World by Dustin Willis. If you just read one book, I'd recommend this one. Uh, second one is The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Great, two great books. They both talk about coming to a point in their lives where they realized hospitality was such a value, they needed to put it in their budget. It's like, well, maybe we need you know a couple hundred dollars or a thousand bucks to buy a new bigger kitchen room table so we can actually have bigger guests over. Maybe we need to create a, a budget where we can have enough food that if it, we, we can have a couple adults over once or twice a week or once or twice a month. And they begin to put that in their budget. Now, I want to talk about hospitality because it, in, in a pre-Christian or in a post-Christian world, most people say, most of the, I read a lot of books by guys in London and guys in Canada and guys in Australia, pastors who are, you know, ahead of us and where the culture is probably going. And they say that most people, the, the idea of formal ministry is coming less and less um, available. Like the, it's less and less likely that, um, so formal ministry is like uh, this right now. You come to church, you bring your Bible. You go to community group, you bring your Bible. Uh, the weekender, uh, conferences, retreats, those are formal ministries. What's interesting is in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he did almost no formal ministry. 
He, we have a couple like this sermon, that sermon. Mostly he's walking around. He's like, hey, you see that fig tree? Let me tell you something about it. Oh, hey, you see that lady and she didn't have much money and she dropped two things in. Let me explain how she gave all that she had. What is he doing? He's just using informal ministry. Jesus Christ modeled hospitality for us. Think about this. Um, there's three phrases in the New Testament that says the Son of Man came. The first is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The second is the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. Do you know what the third is? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. If you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is eating his way through the Gospel of Luke. He's either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. It's, re it's really amazing to see this. Jesus, before he died for sinners, he dined with sinners. Now, I want, I want to talk about this to free us up in some ways, to say what hospitality is not. Hospitality is not entertaining. So entertaining is about you. Hospitality is about your guest in Jesus. Entertaining is, does the napkins match the drapes? Do they think our house is big? Do they like the stainless steel appliances? Do they think we have a cool open floor plan? Do they like our front porch? That's, that's entertaining. Hospitality is, how can we just communicate welcome? We're ready for you. We're excited you're here. By the way, people, sometimes people, every once in a while, someone will go, why do you have a first impressions team? Why are there people parking cars? Why is there a tent? Organizational hospitality. The church does what the Christian family should do. We're ready for you. God's ready for you. We're ready for you. If you come, you're welcome here. So that's the first thing to free, particularly a lot of women up to say, look, it's, it's not entertaining. It's hospitality. We've had many people over at home and it's, and it's kind of embarrassing at times. I'm like, yes, that's the baseball bat on the floor, you know, and that's a stain on the rug. I mean, this is just our life. This is where we are. This is our season. Um, but the second thing is um, that hospitality is different than fellowship. So a lot of times people will say this, they'll say, and they mean well. They'll, they'll say, you'll, you'll have a couple couples, Christian couples that love each other. And that's a good thing. And it's like, well, yeah, we go over the Campbell's house, and then we go over the Smith's house, and then we go over the Ryan's house, and we kind of, and, and then, you know, we just, we kind of have this part that we kind of go over each other's houses, and we're all Christians, and we like each other, and we do this, and one time it's this house, next time it's this house. That would be called fellowship. If you know the people well, and you love them, and they're your Christian brothers and sisters, and you're having them over, and you've done it before, it's called fellowship. And that's a good thing. It's a different Greek word. It's the word koinonia. And it's a good thing that we should practice. But it's not the same as hospitality. Hospitality is I am inviting over the stranger in hope that they would become the neighbor and hope that they would become the brother. That's what hospitality is the welcoming in of the stranger. Now, here's what's interesting Jesus in Matthew 25. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, he says, you know, I was in prison and you fed me and, you know, and I was naked and you clothed me. And then he says this, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. It's the exact same words. What's interesting is Jesus is actually saying there's an intimacy and experience of me that you will receive only in practicing hospitality. Only in the opening up of your, of your home. Now, why don't we practice hospitality? I believe the reason we don't practice hospitality is it's primarily how we view our homes. It's a very American idea that we view our homes as castles, not catalysts for ministry. Our home is like the final place that no one can bother us. We can do whatever we want. And until we begin to view our homes as a catalyst for ministry instead of a castle, I, I think we won't practice hospitality as much. It's funny, I had a guy after the first or second service this morning, a friend of mine, he's from Lebanon originally. And he came up to me and he said, he said, this is completely, he said, the non-hospitable spirit is an American spirit. He said, in Lebanon, if your neighbors, if, if one of your neighbor's family members dies, he says, you open up your home for their family to stay at for th up to three days. He said, so every time somebody in my neighborhood or village died when I was growing up, he said, all their family just came and stayed at our house for three days. He said, that is just built into the culture. But as Americans, we view our, it's like it's princess's palace, it's king's castle. It's the one place no one else can go. But we won't have the ministry and mission that we need if we're not loving other Christians and inviting non-Christians in our life. It might be a good thing to just say, what would it look like to once a month have somebody, it could either be a, a Christian who you don't know well, or it could be your non-Christian neighbor, into your home for hospitality. Finally, the third thing is this. Don't use your time to consume, but to contribute. Don't use your time to consume, but to contribute. Now, if there, I talked about the, alt, the, alt, the idol of sensualism, that life's about making me feel good. 
The idol of individualism, that life's about me being alone, isolated, separate. The third idol is the idol of, I would say, consumerism, which may be the biggest idol. I mean, you've probably heard this statistic before, but there are more storage units than Starbucks. And there's a lot of Starbucks. And here, by the way, here's a, not to make anyone feel guilty, but here's an interesting fact about storage units. Your, the average size of a storage unit and the materials, the center blocks that is, and the doors that a storage unit are made out of are the same materials most homes in Central America are made out of. And they're the exact same size. That when we buy stuff that we don't need to impress people that we don't like, to then put it later in a storage unit, okay? I'm not, I'm not against all storage units. But it, it's, a, it's a sign of the epidemic, right? We live in an Amazon age. We can order anything. Um, we, we, it's Amazon. It, it's Walmart. Okay, it's Netflix. The other, a couple months ago, we were driving by an old, um, I can't remember if it was a Blockbuster or a Hollywood video, and it was, you know, you could just see where the old sign had been. And I spent about 15 minutes trying to explain to my kids what a Blockbuster was. I was like, you went inside it, and there were movies on the shelves. And your movie that you wanted might not be there. You know? And they, they, could, they could. And then you'd get one. And then you'd take it up, and you'd pay for it, and you'd have to bring it back two days later. And I'm like, that wasn't that long ago. But it's like, yes, that was when dad rode his dinosaur to work. That's when that, you know, it's like, that's what it feels like when you talk about that. It's because they can, they can consume whatever they want naturally. And, and the consumeristic culture kills the church, right? You can't have more consumers than contributors. You can't have a, more customers than co-laborers. You can't have more selfish people than servants. You can't have more takers than givers. So I want to read verses 10 and 11. He ends after he says, deal with your sin. And after he says, get in community, here's the third thing he says, as each has received a gift. And let me encourage you, if you're a Christian with salvation, you get at least one spiritual gift. Many of you have several, but when you become a Christian, you get a spiritual gift. You can see it right here in the scriptures. As each has received a gift, use it. Our desire is for you to discover your gifts, develop them, and deploy them. He says this, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This is interesting. What he's saying is God's grace looks different depending on your gifts. God's grace will look different in you depending on the gifts he's given you. And then he says this, whoever speaks, so what he's going to do is he's going to give two categories of gifts. There are five sets of gift lists in the New Testament. This is the most general. A lot of times Paul will say, here's 15 gifts. Here he's just giving two categories. Whoever speaks, so they're speaking gifts. Teaching, preaching, counseling, encouragement. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. How do you know it's a spiritual speaking gift? The word of God is the basis of it. That's how God gets the glory. I'm not giving you what I think. I'm not giving you good advice, I'm giving you good news. I'm not giving you my thoughts, I'm giving you God's words. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So how do you know you're serving, and it's a spiritual gift that you're serving? It's like you are able to serve in a strength and in a capacity that could only really be from God. Strength that God supplies in order that, this is so God-centered, that, that Peter gets so excited writing this, he ends up doing a doxology in the middle of his letter. Some commentaries are like, why does he do this? There's like a doxology, and then he goes back into writing again. But here he goes. In order that in everything God may be glorified. That means to, be, to glorify God means that he looks great. So use your gifts so God looks great so that you don't look great. It's not to make you look great. The great temptation is to use your gifts to gain money or influence. And he's saying instead use them to honor God. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ... To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is a divine enablement from the Holy Spirit for you to serve other people in ministry and mission. This is why, by the way, um, Paul, in, one of his, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says singleness is a gift. And whenever you tell a single person, hey, singleness is a gift, they normally say, and where's the gift receipt? I'd like to, you know... <laughs> Because what they think is, people, when they hear the word gift, they think present. That's a different Greek word. Present is, um, the idea of present is like, oh, here's a gift for you to selfishly use for yourself. 
and for you to enjoy, that would be a present. A gift is, here's a divine enablement that I'm going to give you so you can uniquely serve other people. And then if you go, okay, well, then I could maybe understand why singleness could be that for a season or for a lifetime. That every speaking gift and every serving gift should be that. Our desire is for every person here to discover their gifts. Now, how do you do that? Well, I'll tell you two things. One is we have online, a, on our resource, resource page, a spiritual gifts test. And we put it on there, and, and I think it's good. I, I think it's okay only because most people fill those out for what they want to be, not who they really are. Right? You're like, well, I'm great at leadership. It's like, oh, maybe. Right? Uh, maybe. Uh, but, but, but actually, the way that you discover your gifts, this is really important. This is why a lot of people don't know their gifts. They're not in meaningful community. They're not in ministry and mission. If you get a part of a meaningful community that's trying to do something, it's like, well, get over here. Start praying. Start leading. Start teaching. We got way too much to do. We've got way too many people to reach. I need everybody on board falling for, failing forward and failing fast and figuring out what their gifts are. The way that you figure out your gifts is you do a bunch of things in community and people go, mm-mm. <laughs> or they go, that's awesome, right? I mean, to me, the, the, this is kind of an exaggeration of it, but I, when I think of it, I think of the show America's Got Talent. If you, if you watch America's Got Talent, I, I only Googled the golden buzzer, America's Got Talent. I love those. If you, Raise your hand if you've seen America's Got Talent Golden Buzzers. You guys aren't giving me the feedback tonight. You're like, yeah, what are you talking about? You all have seen this, okay? What happens in these shows, and, and I cry. Every time I watch a Golden Buzzer, I cry like a 12-year-old girl at a Taylor Swift concert. I mean, I just, because what ha- it's so beautiful. What happens is usually, and I'm just going to be blunt and candid here. It's the 545 service. But usually somebody walks up who looks disheveled and awkward. They come up there and they're like, they're insecure and they grab the microphone and you, they're Simon and Simon's like picking up. What are you going to sing for us today? Oh, well, I'm going to sing you. you know. and they can barely speak into the mic and you're like, oh goodness, this is going to be embarrassing. And then the music hits and they start to sing. And it's, if you've never seen this, it's incredible because what you see is they do such a great job on the cinematography because what they do is they first scan to the judges. And within about 15 seconds, the judges are like, oh my goodness. This person has a gift I didn't know. And then about 30 seconds in, they scan out to the whole, there's hundreds, maybe a couple thousand people in the room. And it's, it's, it's electric because everybody's like standing up and leaning in like, this person's using their gift. And, and, and the reason I love the golden, so the golden buzzer, the way this works is, you only get one, each um, judge only gets to use one a season and it sends somebody to the final round to, to go all the way. And so, Whenever somebody hits the golden buzzer, it is a complete like, yes, like you are it, like you did it, like this is what you were made for. And and I just would say that is our desire for every person to find out how has God made them. Uh, It's not about serving uh, the serve one attend one culture in the morning or night in in, in your particular way to serve. That may be a great gift. But I'm talking about, in general, what are the gifts that God has given you for you to help move the message and the ministry and the message of Jesus forward? Because we need everybody using them. That's the great desire in our church. We want to help you. Hear me say that. We want to help you to discover them, to develop them, and to deploy them. Uh, We really believe if we would be a church that would take care of our sin, say I'm closing the door on on my sin and then I'm opening the door of my house. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to discover how God made me and why I'm on earth and what the unique fingerprint that I have. And I'm gonna give my time the rest of my life to developing them. I feel a constant, a constant, um, Burden to develop my spiritual gifts constantly. And, and I, I feel constantly like, God, I want to be a better teacher. God, I don't know what to do next. God, make me a better leader. God, I was a better evangelist when I was a Duke than I am now. Help me. It's like, what you want to do is you want to discover your gifts and say, God, would you just at least help me to do all these things? Because here's the thing look at verse 11. It's all about making God look great. It's all about showing how great God is. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, 
in order that in everything, here's the goal, that God would be glorified, and it's not just God vaguely and generally. God has a face that, that through Jesus Christ, to him, most commentators think to him is Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. See, what happens is when you take sin seriously, people start asking why. And you could say, because I know some guy that took sin super seriously. He took sin so seriously that he said no to every temptation and every sinful desire that he ever had. If you could say, why are you opening up your home? Why are you feeding us? Why are you welcoming us in? Why are you giving your nights and your weekends to this? You could say, well, actually, I know the most hospitable person that ever lived. In fact, you want to know what the cross of Christ is? It's Jesus Christ making a way for us to go home to heaven. If you, well, where do you get the idea that you would welcome people that are strange to you into your family? And it might be difficult and it might inconvenience you. You look to the cross of Christ. And if you'd say, why would you use all of your gifts to serve? Why? Because Jesus Christ used everything that he had to serve us. He used his divinity. He used his knowledge of the word of God. He used his physical body in washing of the feet of the disciples. It's because we have been served and we have received so much hospitality that we desire to be a hospitable people and we deserve, desire to serve our church in ministry and to serve our world in mission. Let's pray. Lord, I love our church. I do. I am constantly just grateful. I'm grateful for every man and woman in this worship center right now. Lord, I pray for us that we would take sin seriously. That whatever area of our life we've not integrated, maybe it's our sexuality. We've been, oh yeah, I believe that. Yeah, you've not, we've not integrated it. Maybe it's our sinful anger. Maybe it's the way that we view money. Maybe it's the way that we relate to our kids or our spouses. Lord, Lord make us integrated people. That there's not a, a massive difference between our private life and our public life between what we say and how we live, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'd be a hospitable people. This is not to put burdens on husbands and wives or singles to constantly open their house, but it, it is to say, what would it look like to be generous with our homes? As people who've received so much hospitality, Lord, let us discover and develop and deploy our gifts, Lord, for the good of every person in this church, for the good of our city, and for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.